Good evening, everyone. Good evening. We're going to uh, continue tonight examining the evidence in support of our belief that the Bible is God's Word. Uh, as we get started here, as we get up to where we are tonight, I'll quickly review what we discussed last time. And for those of you who weren't here last time, uh, if you have questions about any of this, uh, please hold your questions till the end so I can make sure I get through tonight's information. Handouts in front, right, Dana? Yes, there are. For, for any of you who don't have handouts yet, there are two handouts there in front. Last time I gave you the acronym that I used to remember the different types of evidence in support of the Bible. Uh, last time my, my acronym was MAP, MAP. But uh, in response to a question that Brian Beers asked last time, I've added one more letter, so it's, now it's M-A-P-S. That stands for Manuscript Evidence, Archaeological Evidence, Prophetic Evidence, and Scientific Evidence. That's the one I added. So last time we looked at the manuscript evidence and part of the archaeological evidence. We'll finish looking at the archaeological evidence tonight, and then we'll get into the pro prophetic evidence. I probably won't have time to uh, go through the scientific evidence, but I've, I've provided you with a handout. Uh, on the last page of the handout, it, uh, it has the science confirms the Bible. It's not intended to be exhaustive, of course, but it gives you some good information about uh, things that the Bible said that were scientifically accurate centuries before people understood these things. In many cases, people didn't understand these things until the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. So we looked at the manuscript evidence, both the internal evidence of the manuscripts themselves and the external evidence, what other ancient writers said about the events described in the Gospels. With the internal evidence, we compared the New Testament with other ancient writings, both in terms of the time gap between the writing and the earliest copies that we have, and also the number of copies. We discovered that the New Testament compares very favorably with other ancient writings. And then we looked at the... at the archaeological evidence. And we learned uh, an important principle about archaeology in the Bible, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because nothing has been discovered yet which confirms something in the Bible, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and that it never will be found. And we've seen that happen time and time again. So we looked at some of the archaeological evidence. We looked at uh, King Sargon, the king that skeptics said didn't exist. And we looked at the Roman decree in Luke chapter 2, which skeptics said didn't exist, but archaeological discoveries have proven those conclusions wrong. Then we went on to look at these other um, items of archaeological evidence. And we went all the way, there's my dot here. We went all the way down here to, we ended with the, the Cyrus cylinder. And tonight we'll start looking at the, the rest of these. 
So we looked at King Sargon. We looked at the decree of Luke chapter 2. We looked at the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is outside confirmation of a worldwide flood. We looked at the Merneptah Stila, which is from ancient Egypt. It's confirmation that the Israelites were in the Promised Land at that time, which was about 1230 B.C. That's the earliest mention of the, of the Israelites in an outside source. We looked at the walls of Jericho, and we discovered that um, archaeology shows that the walls collapsed outward, indicating that they were supernaturally fallen, not, not inward as they would have been if, if somebody had attacked the city. We looked at the existence of, of David and Solomon. The Bible skeptics claim that David and Solomon probably didn't exist, but even if they did, they were just minor local chieftains. But the ar archaeological evidence that has been discovered in recent years uh, clearly shows that that is wrong. We find an inscription which actually mentions the house of David. The city of David has been, uh, the palace of David has been discovered south of the Temple Mount. This is Kirbet Kayapa, which is the city uh, southwest of Jerusalem from the time of David and Solomon. And it shows clearly that they, this was not a, a backward uh, local area, just a backwater that, that uh, was not part of a, an extensive kingdom. And we saw King Solomon's mines, these copper mines that have been discovered in uh, Jordan from that time. So we have an idea now of where all of the copper was coming to make the brass in the temple of Solomon that Solomon built. I mentioned briefly the archaeology of Egypt uh, concerning the Bible, and I mentioned that that was a, a rather complex subject that I may uh, cover later on in the spring, for example. We looked at the black obelisk. There's a panel on the black obelisk which actually shows King Jehu bowing down before the Assyrian king Shalmaneser. So we actually have a, a depiction of, a, of an Israelite king. This is the Cyrus Cylinder, which confirms that King Cyrus of, of Persia did actually allow the Jews to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. And that brings us up to where we are tonight, the Pool of Siloam. Some scholars had denied that the Pool of Siloam existed in Jesus' time because the traditional location for the pool dates only to the 5th century A.D., the Byzantine times. When I first went to Israel back in 1982, this was the site that they showed tourists as the Pool of Siloam. This is a site that can only be dated back to the 5th century A.D., but in 2005, archaeologists unearthed the steps of, a, of the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus sent a blind man to be healed, as recorded in John 9. The recently discovered pool, 200 yards from the traditional location, dates back to the first century B.C. and was used 
during Jesus' time. So in my most recent trip to Israel in 2007, I saw this, this huge pool, much, much larger than the traditional site, and that's now identified as the, the site of the Pool of Ceylon. You notice that I said in my most recent trip to Israel. I never say my last trip to Israel because I always hope there will be more. <laughs> this is an, an artist's uh, rendition of what the Pool of Siloam may have looked like back in Jesus' day. And this is the Pontius Pilate inscription. The inscription is in Latin, so in, in Latin it's Pontius Pilatus. Uh, you heard about the little boy who drew a picture of an airplane in Sunday school class? Peering out the windows of the airplane, there were four faces. And the little boy said, well, this is Joseph, and this is Mary, and this is the baby Jesus. And the uh, Sunday school teacher said, well, well, who is this fourth person? And the little boy explained. He said, that's Pontius, the pilot. <laughs> Pilots were hard to come by in the first century, but we did, we, but we did find this one. In 1961, archaeologists working at the ruins of Caesarea in Israel found a stone slab bearing the name of Pontius Pilate, who was involved in the trial of Jesus. This is the oldest appearance of Pilate's name to be found, and it dates to the time of Jesus. Once again, before this discovery, skeptics were claiming that there never was a Pontius Pilate. That's just a name that the Gospel writers made up. And then there are the Polytarch inscriptions. What are those? Because the Greek term Polytarchs could not be found in existing ancient literature outside of the New Testament, some critics argued that Luke must have been mistaken in his use of the term in Acts 17.6. That passage speaks of some believers in Thessalonica being dragged by a mob before the Polytarchs. Well, now 32 inscriptions have been found that have the term Polytarchs. And 19 of them come from Thessalonica, the very city that the New Testament mentions where this happened. At least three of those inscriptions are, come from Paul's time. The Gallio inscription. Archaeologists found a stone inscription at Delphi in Greece that mentions a Roman governor named Gallio of the province of Achaia. This inscription contains a Roman date corresponding to 52 AD. Gallio is the governor referred to in Acts 18.12. The date on this inscription allows Bible scholars to know almost exactly when the Apostle Paul was ministering to early Christians in Corinth. And now we come to the most compelling evidence of all, and that would be the prophetic evidence. So we're going to look at the Bible prophecies about the succession of nations, about the destiny of Israel, about the destiny of other nations, and then finally at the Messianic prophecies.
in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire had a dream in which he saw a huge metallic image with head of gold, uh, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of brass, and legs of iron. The prophet Daniel was called to interpret this dream for him. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given sovereignty, power, might, and glory. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the, all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. The image of Daniel chapter 2 gives us the sequence of, of nations that would arise. Now, remember when Daniel lived, he was only in the Babylonian Empire and the, the Medo-Persian Empire, the second. The Greco-Macedonian Empire and the Roman Empire, those were still in the future in Daniel's day. So the head of gold represented the Babylonian Empire. The arms and chest of silver represented the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the belly, of th belly or, and thighs of brass or bronze uh, represent the Greco-Macedonian Empire. The legs of iron represent the Roman Empire. Those are the empires that we have seen realized in history. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, we see that same sequence of empires, four empires, but there they're represented by beasts. The first beast that was like a lion represented the Babylonian Empire. The second beast, the beast that was like a bear, represented the Persian Empire. And the third beast, the beast that was like a leopard, represented Greece. And you'll notice that this third beast that was like a leopard is rather unusual. It has four heads. Remember that because you'll see the significance of that in just a moment. The fourth beast, the dreadful beast, represented the Roman Empire. Now in Daniel chapter 8, we see just two of these empires, the second and the third, that represented by a ram and a he-goat, in other words, a male goat. So the ram represents that second empire, the Persian empire, and the goat represents the third empire, the Grecian empire. Now this goat had one notable horn, one notable horn that was broken off, and then that one notable horn was replaced by four horns. So you remember that back in Daniel 7, we saw this beast that was like a leopard that had four heads. And now we see the, the same empire represented by a goat with four horns. So there's something significant about that, those four. After the death of Alexander the Great, who started this Greco-Macedonian empire, after his death, his empire was divided up among four of his top generals. Cassander took Greece, Lysimachus took part of Asia Minor, Seleucus took Syria and Lebanon, and Ptolemy took Egypt. Those first two, Cassander and Lysimachus, they, they, they click quickly fade into the background. But the latter two become very important 
in the history of Israel and in the prophecy regarding Israel. Here is a, a map of, the, of this division of the empire up into four parts. So to, to the left there, the, the lavender, you can see where uh, Greece was taken. That's uh, Cassandra's kingdom. And then the tan over there in Asia Minor, that's uh, Cassandra, or Lysimachus, excuse me. And then the two that we're most concerned with are the, um, the large one in pink, the lar it was the largest part. Uh, have you spotted my dot here? There's my dot. So this, this part in pink is uh, Syria on into Babylon and Persia. That was uh, the, where the Seleucids ruled. And then down here in Egypt were the Ptolemies. And those are the two that become important in the book of Daniel in, in Bible prophecy. Daniel chapter 11 is the longest continuous prophecy in the Bible. Now, remember that at the time that Daniel wrote this, this was all in the future. None of this had happened yet. But now, much of Daniel chapter 11 is history. So we can look back in history and see how accurate Daniel was. This details the long-running struggle between the two, those two powers, the Seleucids of, of in Syria and the Ptolemies down in Egypt. And we find that Daniel was incredibly detailed and accurate in his description of what was going to happen between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. He goes into intricate detail, telling us what was going to happen. And now all of this has been fulfilled. Now all of this is in the past. So he tells us about all of the wars that were going on between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, all of the intrigue and the machinations. The, uh, the ruler of the Seleucids would uh, give his daughter in marriage to the ruler of the Ptolemies, not because he liked the Ptolemies, but because he wanted to worm his way into their palace and find out what they were up to and perhaps gain the upper hand. So Daniel told us in advance all of these things that were happening. Now, skeptics of the Bible say, no, this, this can't be, this can't possibly be predictive prophecy because it's just too detailed and too accurate. So they claim that the book of Daniel was written much later, at the time of the Maccabees. And they claim that, that this uh, prophecy wasn't really prophecy, it was really history presented as prophecy. So are we just left with he said, she said? And some people say Daniel was written late. Some people say it was written early, but there's no way that we can know who's right. Well, there's one little historical detail given to us in the book of Daniel that becomes crucial in this debate. We read about in, in the book of Daniel about the amazing story of King Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall. King Belshazzar threw a party. And in the midst of his party, this disembodied hand appeared supernaturally and began writing on the wall. King Belshazzar was terrified. 
I believe that's in, in Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar was terrified, and he summoned Daniel the prophet to explain to him, to interpret for him what this mysterious handwriting on the wall meant. And after Daniel had done so, then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third ruler? If Daniel's number three, well then who's number two? Inscriptions have been discovered which help us to understand this, this puzzling statement. We found out that at this time, the ultimate king of the Babylonian Empire was a man named Nabonidus. But Nabonidus was away fighting a war. And while he was away fighting the war, he placed his son, Belshazzar, in charge. So now we know why Belshazzar could only make Daniel the third ruler in the kingdom, because Nabonidus was number one, Belshazzar was number two, and then Daniel became number three. But the important thing is that this little historical fact was lost for centuries. So if the book of Daniel were written much later, at the time of the Maccabees in the second century BC, that writer wouldn't have known this little historical detail. But the writer of the book of Daniel did know this little historical detail. So that would indicate that the book of Daniel really was written when it says it was written. And it would also indicate that the prophecies in Daniel chapter 11 really were prophecies. They weren't history written after the fact. So that becomes a very important lesson about the book of Daniel, about when it was written. Now we'll look at the destiny of Israel. As you probably know, the Bible has much to say about the destiny of Israel. More than 300 years ago, King Louis XIV of France said to the Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal, give me a proof, just one proof of the existence of God. Pascal replied, why, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews. In spite of centuries of persecution, attempts to either annihilate the Jewish people or to assimilate the Jewish people, the Jewish people continue to exist as a unique, identifiable people, not only to the time of Louis XIV, but down to our day. The American writer Mark Twain was not a Christian, but he couldn't help but recognize the unique role of the Jewish people in history. He said, the Egyptian, Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and Roman followed, made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out 
and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was. All other forces pass, but he remains. This is exactly what the Bible predicted would happen. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from before me forever. The last time I checked, the sun and the moon were still shining and Israel still existed. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Despite our technological advances, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface about exploring the, the vastness of, of the universe or the, uh, the inner uh, workings of the, of the earth. These prophecies about the, the durability and the certainty of God's promises to Israel are found in many places. Here's another one. Thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. Those who, who believe in um, replacement theology would like to latch on to this verse. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, Israel, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. So they say, yep, see right there, it says that once, once the Messiah comes, then Israel is gone. There's, it has no more significance in God's prophetic plan. But hold on, hold on, read, read the rest of the verse. However, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. That word earth, uh, the Hebrew could be translated either earth or land, depending on the context. Perhaps a better rendering would be, I will remove it from the land, meaning the land of Israel, not from the earth. Now, now we'll look at some scriptures about God's promises to regather Israel. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I have not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God. He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. Now, I mentioned before that, that those who believe in covenant theology would like to say that, well, 
Israel was only significant up to the coming of the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, Israel is, is no longer significant in God's plan. But Eric has explained many times that the Israel that's mentioned in Romans 9, 10, and 11 cannot possibly be spiritual Israel, i.e. the church. Paul said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The Gentile Christians were not close biological relatives of Paul. The Israelites were. The nation, national ethnic Israel. And then, of course, here's the real clincher in, in chapter 11. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. How could the God's true church possibly be enemies of the gospel? Clearly, we're talking about national ethnic Israel here. Now, the question that does arise... Well, first, first I'll read this promise. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The question that does arise is this. Is the current regathering of Israel that we see, is it prophetically significant? Some say that it is not. Their primary objection is that Israel is being regathered to the land in unbelief. They point out that uh, most of the Jewish people in Israel today, not only are they not Christian, they're not even observant Jews. The majority of the Jewish people living in Israel today are secular. So the people who don't feel that this is prophetically significant will, uh, will point to that and say, this, this cannot possibly be the ultimate final regathering of a faithful remnant. But I would contend that there are two aspects, two phases, if you will, to this regathering of Israel. In addition to that final, ultimate regathering as a faithful remnant, there must also first be a preliminary regathering in unbelief. We can see that as we examine the prophecies about the regathering of Israel, that there are two different regatherings that are being talked about, two different conditions. Now, don't worry about trying to get all of this down right now. I can, I can put this slide up for you again later, for those who are interested. But for the moment, let's just look at this last prophecy right here in Zephaniah, the Lord, on the lower left side. Chapter 1 of Zephaniah gives us a vivid description of the day of the Lord. But chapter 2 of Zephaniah says that before that happens, before the day of the Lord, there is to be a regathering of Israel in unbelief. Gather yourselves together, 
Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Nation without shame. So obviously we're talking about an unrepentant Israel, an Israel that is still in unbelief. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. So before the day of the Lord, before that 70th week, before the tribulation, there is to be a gathering of Israel in unbelief. The, the, the uh, reasoning goes like this. The tribulation cannot begin until the seven-year covenant is made. The covenant cannot be put in place until a Jewish state exists. Therefore, a Jewish state must exist before the tribulation. In other words, if the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel, then there must first be an Israel for him to make a covenant with. Most of you are probably at least somewhat familiar with the fulfilled prophecies regarding Israel. But you may not be as familiar with the fulfilled prophecies regarding other nations. Well, look at just a few of those. Tyre, Sidon, and then the Philistine cities of Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. And then finally, we'll look at Egypt in Bible prophecy, in fulfilled Bible prophecy. Here is the uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. So up north, you can see Tyre and Sidon in what is today Lebanon. And then moving down further south, you can see the, the Philistine cities there. And of course, you probably know where Egypt is located. So let's look at, at each of those in turn. First of all, the destiny of Tyre. In Ezekiel 26, I am against you, Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her bare rock. Out of the sea she will become a place to spread nets, fish nets. For I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. From the north, I am going to bring against Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a great army. He will ravage your settlements on the mainland with the sword. He will set up a siege works against you. Build a ramp up to your walls and raise your, his shields against you. He will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and demolish your towers with his weapons. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. I will put an end to your noisy songs, and the music of your harps will be heard no more. 
I will make you a bare rock, and you will become a place to spread fish nets. You will never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. Ezekiel chapter 26 issues six specific prophecies regarding the city of Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar would destroy the mainland city, which he did. The debris of the city would be thrown into the water, which it was. The city would become a bare rock. Many nations would come against Tyre. The city would never be rebuilt. Fishermen would spread their nets over the site. This is a map of the ancient city of Tyre. A portion of the city was located on the mainland, but part of the city was on an island about a half mile off the coast. Nebuchadnezzar was able to destroy that portion of the city which was on the mainland. He besieged them for 13 years. He, did, he completely destroyed the city that was on the mainland, but he could never dislodge that part of the city that was out on the island. A couple of centuries later, along came Alexander the Great, and he was not going to be deterred by this water in between. Alexander the Great had some really good military engineers. They built a causeway, a half mile long, out to the island, 200 feet wide, so that he could move siege engines out to attack the city, to batter down their walls. And he destroyed them. He defeated them. And when Alexander the Great came against Tyre, many of the nations that he had subdued became his allies. So that fulfills the prophecy about many nations will come against you. Over time, over the centuries, silt collected around this causeway. So that what was once an island is now a peninsula jutting out into the Mediterranean. There is a modern city of Tyre, but it's not built on the ancient site. This is a photograph out on the end of that peninsula looking towards the Mediterranean. You can see that it did indeed become a bare rock, just as the Bible predicted. And it became a place for fishermen to spread their fishnets to dry, just as the Bible predicted. Now let's look at the nearby city of, of Sidon. Ezekiel chapter 28 prophesies concerning Sidon. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will be glorified in your midst. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her, and I will manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence to her and blood to her streets, and the wounded will fall in her midst by the sword. Upon her, upon her every side, on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Notice that Sidon was not to be destroyed and never be rebuilt. 
God's judgment on Sidon was not one of utter extinction, as it was in the case of Tyre. Sidon was to be a continuously existing city, but was to suffer much trouble. Throughout its history, Sidon has often been destroyed and then rebuilt again, destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt. In each case, Tyre and Sidon, the prophecies of the Bible came to pass exactly as God foretold. So now let's move down the Mediterranean coast and look at the cities of the Philistines, look at their destiny. Concerning the cities of the Philistines, Zephaniah 2.4, Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Zechariah 9.5 tells us that the Philistines will be aware of the destruction of Tyre and what the result will be. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. Notice that Ashkelon was the one city in particular which was not to be rebuilt. The following is from a travel guide for tourists to Israel. Notice what it says about Ashkelon. About one mile south of the town center, there lies in a national park the ancient part of the historic city of Ashkelon. It is separated from the modern settlements by a broad park belt planted with orange trees. So once again, the ancient city was never, re never re rebuilt, just as the Bible had predicted. Now let's look at the destiny of Egypt. Regarding Egypt, Ezekiel 29, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came unto me, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Egypt shall be the lowliest of kingdoms and will never again exalt itself above the nations. I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. Has Egypt ever been restored to its ancient status as a world-dominating superpower? No. And that is exactly what the Bible predicted. The people of Egypt, uh, with the advent of the Arab Spring, they were hoping, oh goody, all we have to do is get rid of Hosni Mubarak and everything will be wonderful for us. Well, the Arab Spring has now become the Arab Winter, and most of the people of Egypt are still living in poverty, just as they have for centuries. This is Nectanebo II. He was the last pharaoh of Egypt's 30th dynasty. And he also becomes important in Bible prophecy.
Rawlinson's Ancient History says this about the last pharaoh of Egypt's 30th dynasty. Thus perished this unfortunate monarch, the last of the long line of pharaohs, which, commencing with Menes, he was the, the first pharaoh of Egypt, commencing with Menes, had ruled Egypt as an independent monarchy for about 16 centuries. The Bible predicted in Jeremiah 30, 13, there shall no longer be a prince from the land of Egypt. You see, Egypt did have dynasties after the 30th dynasty, but never again were they ruled by a native prince. Egypt would never again be ruled by a native son, a native prince. And the Bible predicted that beyond a certain point, that would happen. So let's look at Egyptian history and, and see that prophecy fulfilled. You've all heard of Cleopatra, right? Her full name was Cleopatra VII Philopater. There were other Cleopatras before her, but she's the one that we're familiar with. She's the one that uh, had the fam famous liaison with Mark Anthony, the one who was played by Liz Taylor. Cleopatra was not a native Egyptian. She was the last of the Ptolemies. Remember the Ptolemies that we learned about earlier? She was the last ruler of the Ptolemies. And after her, then Rome took over, and they ruled Egypt. This is a romanticized image of what Cleopatra looked like. This is an ancient bust of what she probably really looked like. So she was the last ruler of the, of the Ptolemies, the Greek rulers of Egypt, and then came the Romans. And after the Romans came the Persians, or excuse me, after, after the Romans came the Byzantines and the Arabs and the Ottoman Empire. And then for a time, Egypt was ruled by a monarchy. This was the dynasty of Muhammad Ali. And no, I'm not talking about the boxer. This is a different Muhammad Ali. He began his dynasty back in 1805. This is King Farouk, who was the last of the Muhammad Ali dynasty. He was overthrown by a revolution in 1952. But the interesting thing about Muhammad Ali's dynasty is that Muhammad Ali wasn't even from Egypt. Muhammad Ali came from Albania in Southern Europe. So once again, Egypt is not ruled by a native prince. After King Farouk was overthrown in 1952, Egypt has been ruled by a series of presidents. There was Gamal Abdel Nasser, there was Anwar Sadat, there was Hosni Mubarak, there was Mohammed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood, and the current ruler of Egypt is General Abdul Fattah el-Sisi. These men are not descendants of the ancient pharaohs. These are Arab leaders. Back in the 7th century AD, the Arab people just exploded out of the Arabian Peninsula with the spread of Islam and came to dominate much of the Middle East. And these presidents of Egypt are Arab leaders, not, not descendants of the ancient pharaohs. So once again, 
The Bible predicted that beyond a certain point, Egypt would never again be ruled by a native prince, and that is exactly what has happened. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that there's no hope for these people, that the future is entirely bleak. Because after Jesus Christ returns to the earth and establishes his millennial kingdom, a remarkable thing will take place that will completely transform the Middle East from the way it is today. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite it and heal it. He shall smite and heal it. And they shall turn even to the Lord. And he shall be entreated by them and shall heal them. In that day, Israel shall be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Finally, we want to look at the Messianic prophecies. How many messianic prophecies are there in the Old Testament? Well, I don't know that anybody can give you a definitive answer to that question, because it depends on who's counting and how they count. One website that I looked at had uh, 365 messianic prophecies, one for every day of the year. I have here a list of messianic prophecies that that's six pages long. Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are confirmed or fulfilled in the New Testament. So it, it, it depends on how you, how you count and who's counting. For example, in, in Zechariah, there's a prophecy about the Messiah being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And it says that that silver will be thrown into the temple. And it says that the silver would be used to purchase a potter's field. So is that one messianic prophecy? Or do we break that up and call it three messianic prophecies? So you can see why we shouldn't get too hung up on trying to establish an exact number of how many messianic prophecies there are. Suffice it to say that there are a lot of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. This is uh, Hugh Schoenfeld. Back in 1965, he wrote a book called The Passover Plot. Schoenfeld proposes that Jesus was an innocent messianic pretender who connived to fulfill prophecy in order to substantiate his claims. This book caused quite a sensation back in, in the 1960s, just like the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown caused a sensation in 2003. There are two reasons why this just won't work. First of all, it completely goes against the character of Jesus. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that Jesus was a good person, he was a great moral teacher, but he deceived people. Take your pick, which is it? But even, even more important than that is the very idea itself that Jesus connived to fulfill these biblical prophecies his messianic prophecies. Now, granted, some of the prophecies, like riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, that would be fairly easy to arrange. But 
the most striking messianic prophecies are those which Jesus could not have orchestrated if he were just a man. The prophecy about his place of birth. He was to born, be born in Bethlehem. He couldn't have planned that if he were just a man. The time of his birth. When we get into the timing of the, of the arrival, arrival of the Messiah, we're talking about the, the 70 weeks prophecy. And I won't go into that right now, but a, a good book that I would recommend is the, Harold Honer's book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And that will give you a good understanding of, of what the 70 weeks prophecy is all about, and how that predicted the, the timing of Christ's arrival. The manner of his birth. He was born of a virgin. That's hard enough to do in the first place, but especially to plan it. The fact that he would be betrayed by a close friend was predicted in the book of Psalms. The manner of his death, that he would be crucified. When Psalm 22 was written, the crucifixion as a, as a method of execution hadn't even been perfected yet. Next, the people's reactions, mocking, spitting, staring, etc. Jesus couldn't have orchestrated that, how, how his enemies would react to him. And so you see a whole list of, of scriptures predicting how, how people would react to Jesus. His piercing, both his piercing in, as in the crucifixion and the piercing of his side with a spear. These, these things were predicted. And finally, his burial, that he would be burial, buried with a rich man. He couldn't possibly have orchestrated these things if he were just a man. Another objection that is raised by opponents of the Messianic prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus Christ will say that, well, Jesus could have just fulfilled these prophecies by coincidence, by accident. How likely do you think that is? The chance that eight, only eight Messianic prophecies could have been fulfilled in any one man by coincidence, this is just eight Messianic prophecies, are one in 10 to the 17th power. It's difficult for us to wrap our heads around numbers like that. What does that mean, 1 in 10 to the 17th power? Well, let me give you an illustration that will help you understand that. Let's say that we have covered the entire state of Texas, the entire state of Texas, with silver dollars to a depth of two feet. We've covered the entire state of Texas with silver dollars to a depth of two feet. And let's say that we take one of those silver dollars and we paint it red. And then we hide that one silver dollar somewhere in that enormous pile of silver dollars. And then let's say that you are blindfolded and you are to select one silver dollar from that enormous pile of silver dollars. What are the chances if that one silver dollar that you selected would be our marked silver dollar? That is one in 10 to the 17th power. And remember, that's just eight Messianic prophecies. 
if we increase the number of messianic prophecies to 48, the chance that 48 messianic prophecies could have been fulfilled in any one man by coincidence is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's 140 times bigger than the pile of silver dollars that we had before. So in other words, we would need 140 piles of silver dollars, like the one that covered the state of Texas to a depth of two feet. We would need 140 of those. And then select one silver dollar from all of those. those that's the chances of one in, 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So I think you can say, understand why there's a book that's on Christian apologetics, and the title of the book is, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Because it does require an enormous amount of faith to be an atheist. You have to believe that something came from nothing. You have to believe that all of the archaeological evidence confirming the Bible doesn't exist and will never be found. And you have to believe that incredibly unlikely events did, in fact, occur. As the Apostle Peter put it, so we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. You would do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I'll conclude with a word of prayer and then if you have any questions you can ask them to me Father in heaven we do thank you that you have given us your word a word that is trustworthy, a word that is reliable a word that we can depend upon even when our eternal destiny is at stake we thank you for giving us this word, we thank you for showing us how reliable and how trustworthy it is we ask that you would help us to share this information with others as we witness to you, witness to them about the incredible plan that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. We're, we're a little bit over now, but do uh, you have any, any questions or comments? Do you want questions on the tape? Do you want Well, let's just put them on, and if he doesn't, we sure, can put them off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by, by the way, uh, there's a reason why I wore this particular tie this evening, this necktie, because this image that you see on here, that's P52. That's the earliest fragment of the New Testament that we have yet discovered. Now, Dan Wallace thinks that he has one that's even earlier, but we'll find out about that one when it comes. Uh, this tie was designed by James White. He's, he's the person who designed it. So he'll probably design another one if, if Daniel's Wallace is. <laughs> not, not as old as the fragment. But you got meatball on it. Ralph. What's the name of that last pharaoh? Um, I'm trying to figure out what kind of land he lived. I think it was Nebo II. And I think he would have lived in the 4th century B.C. Uh, he would have li lived uh, during the time when Persia was the dominant superpower, just before 
not long before, um, not long before uh, Greece became the dominant power. Brian. What was the Bible reference for the uh, Polytarch inscriptions? Okay, uh, let's, I know it's in Acts, but... Um, Is that at the British Museum? I don't know the answer to that. Um, we could probably, uh, we could probably get on the internet and find yeah. out real quickly, but... <laughs> we got the reference, Dana, it's Acts 17. Okay, okay. And then what, what was the stone called? Like if I Google it, what was that called? Reference to the Polytarchs, the archaeological item? Is that in the name? Not that I know of. Just, just, just Google, Google Polytarch inscriptions and you'll find it. Because there are several Polytarch inscriptions. Anybody else? What's next week, uh, Dana? Uh, next week we'll be begin covering a different subject, and that subject will be um, why do we believe Jesus Christ is God? We'll, we'll deal with the deity of Christ. So there won't be as many pictures next time. Have you been working on this and just perfecting it over the years, or how, how much time have you put in to develop these? Well, a lot of these things have been floating around in my head for a long time. But in, in, as I prepared this, I had to organize it and get some dates and things like that. But I, I kind of knew this information for years. I've been intrigued by biblical archaeology and the, whole, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and that type of thing. Uh, thanks so much for sharing with us. You know, I love your handling of Daniel. I thought that was so impressive to show. And I love this could be dated yeah. from the Maccabean era. Um, just share one with everyone else. You know, um, in the book of Isaiah, God predicts that Cyrus would be one of his anointed yep. to bring yep. Israel back to the promised land. Mm -hmm. Well, the same criticism is launched against Isaiah. He could have he could not have written that beforehand. It must be prophecy oh, yeah. after the fact. He couldn't have known what Cyrus's name would be exactly. before it happened. Yeah. Now, this isn't absolutely um, maybe as earth-shattering as the evidence you've suggested, but it's interesting that um, when you look at like David's name written in Scripture, it's spelled one way prior to the exile. Remember the exile around 586, right? But it's spelled differently after the exile. Well, what's interesting is if Isaiah was really written after the events, you would have to have a spelling that changed. Well, his name has the pre-exilic spelling all the way through Isaiah. So that really eliminates Deuteroisaiah, yeah. yeah. unless you have someone who was smart enough to concoct that. But it's very rare that they do. So, yeah. um, uh, another interesting thing in that regard is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes. Because yeah. this idea that there were at least two Isaiahs, some, some say even more. Right. Um, we had uh, the oldest manuscripts that we had of the, of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, excuse me, in Hebrew, were from a thousand years A.D., long after the fact. So scholars used to debate about, well, how accurate is that? But we've uh, since discovered, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and one of the longest complete scrolls that they found was the book of Isaiah. And interestingly, it's just one scroll. There aren't two scrolls or three scrolls. And it's very not very different from the uh, manuscripts from a thousand years later. So, David, do you know if, um, um, were Daniel's scrolls found? 
in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah. Yes, they were. Uh, I, all of the um, biblical Old Testament books, except the book of Esther, were found in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I've heard of the idea of two Daniels. Well, <laughs> probably it's the same idea that that uh, we got we got to somehow get around this fact that that Daniel predicted these things in advance. We can't have that. I mean, that's just too that's just too unbelievable. 